0: All right, we are in a new series here that we are going to start today that is going to really take us through our worship of Easter. It's a study in the book of Daniel. Uh, So it's something that we do here as a church. We highly value the scriptures, and uh, for years we just went through going chapter by chapter. We've kind of abbreviated it because when you get in the middle of, like, the book of Isaiah, it gets a little rough or something like that. That's why a lot of your start-through-the-year reading plans have gone to die Because uh, you started reading from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus. And then, you know, by the time we get to not eating shellfish, it's just all out. So that's fine. This is a no judgment zone. So we're going to be uh in in the book of daniel and i appreciate chris cox sharing with us as many of you've known and maybe if you have not heard yet is that he's our interim minister and next sunday will be the first sunday that he will be preaching uh in the morning so that's a great time to show up and to judge him profusely so don't just come but bring a friend and then you know and you can set the stage by how you want him to react to that, you know? Because I was like, I was just telling him, I was like, this is a rough crowd. Like, they will not laugh at anything that you say. Case proven, all right? So I was just like, this is a place where jokes go to die. But that's fine, because you guys are, in. you internalize it. Like, you, you're just like, that was humorous. And then you write it down in your journal and laugh later. That's great. So, I I do just want to get right into this this morning, and here's one of the things when we go through the Bible is sometimes we take for granted the idea that, you know, it's a robust book, and there are varying levels of biblical understanding that we have among us, and sometimes we make the assumption that we all know what we're talking about. So, if you'll uh, bear with me today, if you are an egghead, the idea that we want to walk through the biblical history that's going to get us to the study of Daniel, because it takes place in the Old Testament. A lot of us are familiar with Jesus, the early story of the church. But the Old Testament gets muddled, and I think it's helpful for us to be able to set the stage of where we're going over the next few weeks to understand The narrative of the Bible. And that starts with the seminal event within the scriptures, which is the Exodus. And many of us have a familiarity of it. In fact, there's been many different cultures that have taken the story of the Exodus from bondage to freedom and have claimed that as a mantra of their own. And and again, we know of of, of a little bit of the background here probably. Uh, You know, a guy named Moses was called by the Lord to go back to his own people, the Israelites who were being held captive, enslaved by the Egyptians, and the opportunity presented itself for Moses to be the instrument of the Lord to take them from captivity to freedom. It's an amazing story culminating in some ways in the crossing of the Red Sea. And on that, they are on their way to the promised land, the land of Israel that God had promised to them. But there's a problem is that since they had left that land, other people had moved in. Just last week we talked about the story of David and Goliath and the background as that is the Philistines were some of these people that had moved into the neighborhood, but what God had told his people to do is he, he said, listen, it's your land, I'm giving it to you, go and reclaim it, and they did, kind of, because they kind of quit on that and they're like, okay, we got all the really good parts that we want, we'll just let all these other people stay here, and that would present problems for them throughout their history as a nation, because they were always combating the people who were living in the land among them and then other raiders who would come in and try to take possession of that. That led to the people wanting to have a king because they said, look, Lord, if we were just like the rest of the nations, we would be doing a lot better. And God kind of has to be laughing to himself as he's like, no, the thing that makes you different is me that you're my people but that's fine i'll give you a king and what you're going to realize is that the kings are actually going to lead to your demise because they are going to be these physical leaders that are less than perfect and they will likely take you to places that you never should have gone in the first place and, and as you read through you know first and second samuel first and second kings first and second chronicles what you start to realize is that every one of these kings even if they had some shred of decency pushed the people to the brink of a way away from the Lord. It was always this movement from God. So he brought them into the land. They didn't appreciate it. And even to the extent that because of internal arguments, the kingdom was divided and there was, you know, the northern part of the land became known as Israel. The southern two tribes that were left became known as Judah. And right about 722 BC, the northern empire was conquered and decimated. That's why, I don't know if you've ever heard, they're called the Lost Tribes of Israel because they were annihilated. And that leads us to another seminal event within the history of God's people, 586 BC. And by the way, I don't just do this to get my history on to try to prove to you that I can use Wikipedia, but there's something that's important about talking about these types of dates. It's because from an archaeological perspective, we know that this is when that happened. So although there's many parts of us being followers of Jesus that has to deal with our faith, there are historical incidents that are proven that allow us to see that these people lived at this time and did these certain things. And we know, even to the year, that in 587 or so, the Babylonian army had surrounded Jerusalem. It was under siege to the point that the people inside the walls, God's own people, reverted to cannibalism just to stay alive, and in 586, they were conquered. Now this is, uh, I say all this too, because it brings us to this book of Daniel. and something important for us to realize, friends, is that as God's people, we mess up a lot, and God sometimes has to step in to correct now don't view that causatively, right? Like you're afraid. You're like, boy, if I, if I, if I do one bad thing today, then God's going to hit the smite button and then I'll have to deal with his wrath. It's not about that, but it's this understanding of when we are focused in on what God is trying to accomplish, then we see the world differently. And what happened, what was funny, his people had become so familiar with God being there that he said, look, you are not listening to me. And because you will not listen to me, my word, I am going to allow you to be taken captive." And that sets the stage for the book of Daniel, which is where we're at today. So if you have a digital Bible, I would love for you to turn, or turn, to push your buttons. Push your own buttons? I don't know what that... Just find Daniel chapter 1. I'm flipping through a blue Bible, which means I'm losing the sword drill right now. Does somebody have a page number for that? It's in the 625... Kathy wins the sword drill of the day. And if you know what a sword drill is, then you've been in church too long yourself. Anyone? Geeks unite. We are in Daniel chapter 1. Kendra is going to read for us this morning. And Kendra, will you begin by reading verses 1 and 2 of Daniel chapter 1, please?
1: In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, Along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God.
0: So what we need to really uh, come to grips with within this story as it opens up before us is that the people of God had experienced great loss. And I think that's something that we can relate to because these are the types of things that, you know, invoke sadness upon, uh, upon us. Maybe, maybe, you know, you lost something of great worth. Perhaps you lost a human being in your life uh, that you were close to. This experience of loss to them was incredibly robust. Understand that in God's permission of them being uprooted from the land, they were taken away to Babylon, which was 900 miles away. For 900 miles is a long trek, even if you're flying southwest, let alone if you're forced to walk there. Because upon every step, you are forced to contemplate why you are no longer in your home. Behind them, they left the temple. And what the temple was, was the connection between heaven and earth for them. The opportunity to have relationship with their God was also lost. So the further that they move from Jerusalem towards Babylon, they not only see their identity being stripped from them, but they're seeing a distance, a chasm between them and the Lord created. It was incredibly traumatic. And they're taken to this land in Babylon. And the conqueror of Jerusalem was a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, again, he, he is going to reappear throughout all of these stories. And maybe he's one of these weird biblical names of which you have some familiarity. But understand that the role of Nebuchadnezzar within the scriptures is merely as a tool to be used by God to do his work. So it's not that Nebuchadnezzar was such a brilliant military mind that he was able to figure out how to conquer. No, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar on a silver platter to take his people away because he had bigger plans for them. So the loss that the people of God experienced through this entire ordeal is great, and their entire identity is flushed down the toilet. So I was thinking this week about loss and how I have experienced loss. And I would love to uh, entertain that uh, thought this morning with with a a story with 17-year-old Steve. And 17-year-old Steve was a proud young man who had a driver's license and a mother who was afraid to drive the expressways. It's really very interesting, is that my mom is such a bold woman, but even today, she will traverse another 25 minutes just not to go on the freeway. Like, it's something that is just not within uh, her desire to do. She doesn't want to deal with that, you know, death highway or whatever. So when I was 17 years old, my mother had a, a CEU class, a continuing education because she was an educator and it was in Blue Ash and we lived on the west side of Cincinnati and to drive back roads from the west side of Cincinnati, by the way, if you live on the west side of Cincinnati and you're going anywhere, it takes forever. Amen. Don't know who's yes let alone to try to get to Blue Ash, you might as well just pack a lunch and a mule in order to get you there because it just takes a long time. So it was in this point to where, you know, basically I was like hired as my mom's Uber driver like, for two weeks as she went from the West Side to Blue Ash. And I had this little, you know, like, rhythm, too. And this is, by the way, before, like, Starbucks or coffee shops and stuff. So it's not like, you know, you would just go to hang out needlessly in a place with a laptop. I was going to say, it might have even been before laptops. It was before they were affordable, to say the least, you know, so I wasn't that guy who walks into Starbucks with the big desktop computer, and there was no Starbucks anyways. So it was just like, I would drive, and then I would read a book and find place, ways to, you know, just keep me entertained. So, um, and usually, what was interesting in this school at Blue Ash, there was this, uh, you know, there's these nice little trails that bend through there. So I'm like, okay, I'll go for a walk, which is a very, like you know, high school things to do, right? Like, most 17-year-old boys are like, I I should go for a walk. Like, it just shows you how it's a miracle that Kelly tolerates me. Short story long is that near the end of that two-week experiment, as I was leaving Blue Ash one day, I just was like, I don't have my wallet. And you know, I, I was just like, oh, man, I, I lost my wallet on the walk. So told my mom we've got to turn around, went to Blue Ash, and I spent an hour and a half tracing over all of my steps, thinking, where did I drop this wallet? To the extent that, you know, I couldn't find it, and then, really, the next day I went back, so I drove from the West Side to Blue Ash just to find the wallet that I couldn't find again, hoping it would materialize. And I went from there to the police department to tell them, like, my wallet is missing. If you can find it, it's necessary. It's very interesting, too, by the way. It's like, you know, a 70 year olds wallet. I think it was, like, some pictures of, like, some glamour-shot girlfriends that I might have had at the time. I did have my driver's license. There was just nothing of value in it, but it was, it affected me and By the way, it did not find the wallet. And since that point, I have been paranoid about where I put my personal things. Right? Like right now, all of my stuff is over by the, the, the soundboard over there. And do not move it before I get done with church. Because if you do, Jesus will judge you. But it's this idea that I know... When, uh, wherever my stuff is all the time. I have specific places in my house where I put things. When I'm traveling, I have certain pockets in my backpack to make sure that I know exactly where everything is. And you can ask the wife, is that the times where I am most unbearable is if I am in the house and I cannot find something that I know uh, should be in a certain place. True? Testify. Now, there are other examples of loss that we have, but understand that it impacts us, right? When we lose things, and by the way, in, uh, in recent psychological um, research, there's a thing called the endowment effect that these Richard, uh, researchers, um, Daniel Kahneman and Richard Saylor, maybe they've, they write some pop um, you know, research stuff, and it's, it's important to understand this, too, is what they say is that the endowment effect is when you have something of your own, you value that much more than it's actually worth, okay? So something in my possession, if I was just to even hand you a coffee mug right here and be like, here's your free coffee mug, and then offer to buy it back to you, research shows that you would overprice that because, just because I've told you this is your coffee mug. They've done that, and even if they just say, "Hey, here's a coffee mug," you know, I'll give you two dollars for it. That's fine. But once once it's yours in your possession, you value it internally higher than you should. Why? Because it's yours. And friends, that's how loss works in our life. When we have something, it's so painful to us because it's ours. And the people of God, they lost everything that was about them. This was an incredibly traumatic experience. That sets up the rest of it. So, Kendra, verses three through six of Daniel chapter one.
1: Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. All
0: right, earn it. You got it. Daniel,
1: Go it. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief um, official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego.
0: Oh, that's great work. That's what a Christian college degree will get you, is the ability. That's, that's that was it. That was great. That. that was just that. Pronunciation. Okay, I think it's important for us to see is that sometimes even gain brings us loss. Sometimes gain brings us loss. So this is what's interesting is that, you know, there's that 900-mile transference of the people of God. They're going farther and farther away to the home. And then upon arrival, it's like, look, here's everything you could ever want. Like, we're going to provide you with all of these things. Doesn't that seem counterintuitive to how most conquering armies would operate? Like, no, your job is then to enslave. And your job is to, is to punish us for rebelling against your authority. But it's, no, here's everything you could ever imagine. And the reason that they wanted to do that was to make that generation of people um, very inclined to their culture and society. So they wanted to take these good Jewish people, especially the youth, by the way, the, the, the Hebrew uh, verbs here are always connected to, um, to people's person and such. And what we can tell is, is that these people that were chosen were either you know, late adolescent, early teenagers so we have this thing in our mind, it's like, no, Daniel was like this, you know, bitter old man walking across the desert to get to Babylon. But really, he was probably 11, 12, 13 years old during this whole experience. And when it came time then, they said, look, you guys, you're the chosen ones. Have everything you want. Look, we're going have two straws because you're going to drink it all up. And we're going to give you all the food you want to do, all this learning. You are going to learn exactly what it takes to be a good Babylonian. I love this little asterisk. I always talk about it is that to the point that they even gave them names praising their different deities. And what they are doing is trying to systemically reprogram a generation so they remove them by distance from their home. And now as they're far away, they're trying to remove the collective memory of their past so that they will become a new generation of people. Why do you do that? Because that's how your culture lasts much longer than the present day. They were given, they had great gain, they had the opportunity, but yes, it was done under this umbrella of indoctrination. So this is what was interesting, is that if you are one of these young Jewish boys who remember the, just, you know, think about this, if they were inside the walls of Jerusalem, during the invasion, and they saw other human beings, their, their 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 countrymen, eating people, resorting to cannibalism, being in Babylon, you know, it's just like, hey, you know, there, there are no people on the menu. It's just steak. And you're like, what kind of steak? And you're probably feeling like this is good for us. But what was interesting is that it was not. Because this gain actually was loss. And them embracing what the Babylonians had to offer, they were saying goodbye to their past. I can't get it out of my mind. Let's go back to my wallet, because this is important too. Um, Because it's not at all traumatic, the reason I'm bringing this up uh, decades later. But a couple of years ago, when I went back to my house to, to visit my parents, there lying on the table was this old, beat-up wallet. And I just, was, I, I just saw it, and I knew, I knew it at the moment. I was like, that is my wallet. This is not like, you know, two weeks later. This is 20-plus years later. The wallet that I lost at age 17 was sitting on the table. And I said, Mom, it's my wallet. She goes, yeah, I know. She goes, you know that old couch that was the old, like, you know, death trap pull-out couch, and I say that appropriately because it was one of those, like, the early pull-up couches which weighed, you know, far more than it ever needed to weigh, and then when you went to actually open it, there was no way for you to open it without losing a digit in process because it was just, they were horrible. Does anybody remember those types of pull-out couches where you would, like, it's like, just forget it, I'll sleep on the floor, and I'll keep my fingers, right? Well, apparently what had happened was, is that my wallet had dove into the couch and gotten stuck within one of the gears, so that even if you were to look at it or whatever, it just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't visible. They had moved it downstairs and it didn't fall out, and it wasn't until the point where they were like, we have to take apart this couch to actually throw it away, that they found my wallet wedged between two springs, Right? Now, there should be, like, this biblical experience of how it works. Like, you know, like, you know, the lost coin or whatever. You know, the parable of the lost. It's like, what was lost was now is found. I was kind of pissed. Because I had put a bow on my closure of that incident, right? Like, it's like, that wallet was lost. I understand I'm a neurotic now about losing my things. I get it. But now that that wallet was there, it was like here's this thing, this object that I could talk about all the time, losing my head to go get a new license. You know, uh, it was just like this experience. And then again, like I said, I open it up, and there's just really nothing in there except, you know, like a blockbuster video card. My 16-year-old driver's license. And again, some glamour shot pictures of girls that I had forgotten their names, right? Like that was it. You would think finding that that gain again would make me feel better, but it actually bothered me more so than anything, because apparently, for years I had sat right on top of it. it, wasn't there. Not the cleanest illustration. However, there are things in this world that through gain, we experience loss, and that's something that we need to understand. Our pursuit of what we think is important can sometimes derail us from where God is trying to take us. And I think we know those things. But sometimes we don't recognize it it, at the incident that it occurs. Because sometimes we're just like, I need this. I want this. This is important to me. And then we realize that really it wasn't that important at all. Really, that wallet was inconsequential. It cost me a few bucks having to get a license. And it really changed my (laughs) psyche. But in, so it was just this thing. It wasn't important. I just think of the words of Jesus from Mark 8, chapter 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? This is what the young men and the children and the people of God in Babylon were grappling with. Because now they were in a society where everything they had ever wanted was put before them on a platter. And how would they deal with it? Let's keep reading to find out. Kendra... Verses 8 to 14, please.
1: But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hinnaniah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days.
0: There are moments when we need to take self-imposed losses. Okay, now let's clarify. This isn't then self-destruction right? Like, it's like, I just need to derail everything about my life and hit do over. No, there are times where we need to deselect, where we need to declutter, where we need to remove things from our lives in order to make them more fulfilling and rich. And this was a moment that faced, that Daniel and his young colleagues faced, right? Right? that they were uh, called into this Babylonian indoctrination program, and they were giving all these things. And it's very interesting, by the way, because there were all sorts of nefarious things within Babylonian culture that the young men would have been exposed to, right? Like there were some dark, dark things right there, and yet we don't see them making an issue of that, but they make an issue of food. Food. Which is very, it seems nondescript. Now, when we read the Old Testament, you know, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there are certain laws that God's people are called to follow when it came to their food consumption. Laws of kashrut, we might know that something is being kosher. And even still today, Jews, you know, you'll go into the grocery store and certain things will be labeled of whether or not they're kosher. Many times it has to deal with how a food is prepared. Sometimes it's the food that uh, is to be consumed itself. So there's these options for God's people in their consumption of food, something that we do every day, maybe sometimes for enjoyment because something takes, tastes good, but many times just for our assistance, for our survival. And there are things within the scriptures that God's people were told, do not eat this because right now, friends, it's just off limits. And by the way, from Christians, as you guys start to mine through that, what we see in the New Testament, God basically says, hey, it's all good in the hood right now. Have, you know, have your shellfish, have your bacon, just go to town on that stuff because it's not about food. So then you're just like, what was God doing right here? You know, did he just have a heart for lobster? Or, you know, like, did he just want to make them feel bad that they couldn't eat other things? What God was trying to show through the Old Testament is this idea of obedience in all circumstances. From a today perspective, that type of obedience we find oppressive. We're like, who is God that he's asking me to, you know, submit to certain things? But what he's trying to show through that is the heart that we need to take through it. Do you love God enough to self-impose loss because that's what he's asking? So again, for we as followers of Jesus today, that's great because the rules are very few but back then there were challenges. So when Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were faced with this quandary, it's like, hey guys, here's all the Babylonian stuff, and here's the food. And by the way, you know, we see food and wine, and I remember because I grew up in a good fundamentalist Christian church where they were told, and this is why drinking is of the devil, right? Like, you do not drink because Daniel and his friends almost did, but then his friends, that's not what this was about. The issue is that those were foods in that day that were commonly sacrificed to Babylonian gods and idols before being served. So you, the, 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 the animal would go before the priest. The wine would go before the priest. The priest would say a prayer of blessing and then sometimes kill the animal on the spot. And then that would go to the meat market and then it would be served. And the thought was, when you eat this food, then you will receive the strength of that animal and our, our gods through them. So this was just pagan sacrificed food. But you know what they didn't do that with? With fruits and veggies. With these wholesome things. Because they're just like, yeah, and that's, that just grows from the land. Which is very interesting. There were certain, we, we do know there were certain grain things. I don't want to get into the weeds within here, but just they said, when they were forced to eat this food, they said, can, can we have an experiment? Because what we're looking at right here is that we, we, we just don't want to eat this food. Hey, why don't you put us on a veggie, fruit, water diet, and let's just Do a challenge just to see how that works out. Take it all out of the conversation, friends. This is one thing I appreciate. Daniel and his friends were so bold. Because, again, they were within the walls of Jerusalem when they saw that conquering army kill their fellow countrymen, and then dragged them 900 miles away. They knew the power that they were messing with here. And instead of just saying, no, we will not, you know, and this happens later, not to give away the book, but there's times where it's just like, you must worship this God. It doesn't even start there. It starts with food. It starts with, you know what, God doesn't want us to eat this food, and we are going to be faithful. What's fascinating is that these kids were more serious about their faith than the generations that came before them. Because they said, you know what? God said don't do this. Let's see how that works out. Kendra, just one more for us right here. We'll read verse 15 to see what happens right here.
1: At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food.
0: We're talking through the book of Daniel of courage in the face of strife. This seems not very strife-filled for you, but understand their very lives were at stake when they said, let's do a ten-day experiment and see who looks better. Friends, I guarantee you I could go on a very full 10-day Taco Bell bender today and come back, and even though I might feel just wretched, you probably would not see a change in my physical appearance, right? I, trust me. I would know, but you probably would not. I would offer you that the inverse is also true. Because I, I'm a little bit, you know, I'm not a health nut at all, because I eats me what I want to eat. Um, I, I have no kashrut within my dictionary. But a few years ago, you know, I started running, and then I was like, I'm not seeing any effects of that. I changed my diet, and that just changed everything in my life. So I have a pretty clear-cut regimen, but this is one of the things that I've discovered, too. I let myself go to pot at the end of the year. Like, I just, like, forget it. It's Christmas time, man. There's stuff to be eaten, eaten, Done. I, like, eat whatever I want, I pack it on, and then I'm like, okay, January 1, I start over. And this is always the frustrating thing, is that I see very little change, even though I'm eating better and running all the time, in my appearance in the month of January. Nothing happens in January. For four weeks, when I totally change everything about my diet and my exercise, nothing happens. I say all this, not just to put this idea of a 10-day Taco Bell bender in your head, because some of you are like... I've got to try that and see how this works out. The bigger point here is that 10 days is not a long enough period to really see transformational change just because of one's diet. And that's why I always hold is that this is one of the most understated miracles in the entire Bible. It's very interesting. Last week we talked about David and Goliath and the idea that, you know, God allowed the stone basically to penetrate perfectly the forehead of the giant. That's a, that's a pretty solid miracle right there. The idea that a bunch of young dudes look better after 10 days of eating vegetables. The idea that 10 young dudes ate vegetables for 10 days, I guess is miraculous in of itself. But the fact that they did it and it made them look better, friends, that's amazing and it's understated. But why that miracle? Why does that come to them? Because it wasn't about food. It wasn't about the laws of kashrut. It was about their perspective with God. And they said, look, if it is better for my life to give up things that are hindering me from a relationship with God and could take me down another path, we are willing to stand up for that in this moment to say we will do what the Lord asks us to do. Okay, I, I think that's an amazing point. But I know you human beings... And I know how we perceive things, and I think that as much as we want to buy into it, some of us still think it's bullcrap. Because it makes us feel a little too legalistic, right? We don't like legalism because it has to do with this tradition, and we don't usually know how to be with tradition, because some of us want to have traditions, but we don't want to live in slavery to tradition. Is that true? Like, think about that. I just mentioned holiday times. And sometimes, are, are any of you, because some of you are, you know, you're, you're dealing with new family situations, you're weaving people in together. Do you ever have that moment when you're just like, oh, it's Christmas, and well, we have to set up the tree on a Thursday, but then, you know, we can't be in town then, and we're going to have to go see their parents and all this stuff. And then you're just like, tradition sucks. Like, like there's just no balance within it. I think what we usually do— it, and I'm telling you, I, I, just really formulating a, a, a good spiritual Christianity is our issue is that we struggle to find balance in who Christ is and what he wants to do in our lives. And therefore, when it comes to these types of things, like laws of crash root or things that we give up bef- because of God, we, we we find the poles between them. Some of us want to wipe them off the face of the earth. It's like, nope, Jesus came, all is good in the hood right now, you know, uh, yeah let's let's do communion with pizza and soda and that'll be good which the only reason I say is because Larry said that to somebody uh, years ago and somebody left our church because of it and it was just that was the, that was your best moment it happens they've left for worse it was just the best part because Larry was using it as an example and then it just derailed everything it's just like let's talk about tradition he used that example and it was just like wait 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 and I was like you're gonna leave our church that's fine what it is was, though, that person who we was talking about, I don't even have that in my notes as an illustration, but it's apt, brother, because there are people who worship tradition. And this is something that is key for us to see as followers of Jesus, because there is a place for religion and ritual, but sometimes people tend to worship that and not the God who provided it. So we do know, interestingly enough, in the first century, generations later, when Jesus comes onto the scene, that there were religious leaders that were so dedicated to following the law, is that they made laws around laws to say, no, you have to follow this law in order to follow this law, and they made following God just a burden. There was no freedom there. And what we think is that either we have to discard tradition altogether or we have to you know be so closely dedicated to it that it, it, it just dictates everything we do in our lives, and we, we we're missing the point there is that there is a place, friends, for self imposed loss. There is a place for me to be able to accept loss for something that's greater. And in Christian worship and in the Christian calendar, there are opportunities to do so. What's fascinating is that one of those opportunities are coming our way this week. Because this weekend's Ash Wednesday, and sometimes people just forget about Ash Wednesday, especially if you're not um, you know a denominational person, or if you're Catholic, or if you're just one of those people who's like, I'm going to New Orleans, and it's Fat Tuesday, and that's the most important thing. You see, Ash Wednesday is not a biblical tradition. Nor is the celebration of the season of Lent. These aren't Biblical traditions. You're not going to have to come into the Bible and find it. There are some, like, patterns for that. Because the Lenten season, it's supposed to go 40 days. They don't count Sundays, so don't do the maths. It'll just be, it'll plague you throughout. Don't get caught up in that. But one of the reasons, they say, is that, well, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days, and he fasted and he gave up everything. But this isn't biblical, per se. It's a tradition. It's a tradition that sits outside of the Scriptures. But what is interesting is that tradition goes back centuries Over a thousand years of people using this tradition to try to increase and and to transform their walk with God. So it's coming up, and you know, I I really do think that this idea of loss is very cool. You know, this text right here, Daniel chapter 1, is the basis for a newer tradition that has come through as the Daniel fast, which is supposed to, I think, last like either, I don't think even last, I think it lasts more than 10 days. I think it was like 21 days. Maybe some of you have done that. And the point isn't just to like, oh, I'm going to drink vegetables and water or whatever. The point is, is me to say, look, I'm going to go without something right here. To allow me to see what that loss on behalf of God does for me, and I think there's some value within this concept of Lent. It's very interesting, is because again, this isn't biblical, and actually there's some quasi-pagan undertones to it, which is crazy. But the Latin word um, for, for Lent, lente, literally means slowly. So usually our focus on Lent is this idea to where I give something up and then I Facebook about it for a whole month to let people know that I am suffering for Jesus. But the point is supposed to be us taking this time between now and Easter celebration, which is like the Super Bowl of Christianity, right? Everybody, Christmas gets all the flash, but Easter's the day because that's the resurrection and that's the day that death dies and Jesus wins this walk toward Easter just to be able to say, what does that mean to me? So, you you know, we don't do Lent as a celebration every year as a church, but this year I think it's important for us to highlight it because maybe you need to do this. And on a personal level, you know, I've had, I was not a Lent guy. I grew up in a non-denominational Protestant church, and I thought that's what the Catholics did because they needed Jesus more than I did. But then when you undergo something like that, I'm going to tell you, I mean, there, there were disciplines I started in Lent that I still practice today just because there was this idea that I'm going to stop doing this. And what do we do in that type of loss? We love to reconfigure the spotlight to ourselves, right? Like, I'm giving up Diet Coke for 40 days. It's about me. No, it's about me trying to say, in this loss, can, can I limit my gains for Jesus because I want to take a time to see how I can go closer into who he is? I think that's the challenge for you and I during this time. And you've got basically three, four days to kind of chew on this. And again, when we go back to tradition, we're not just telling you right here is that we need you to, you know, just worship this. It's just like, no, I'm, I'm going to employ this practice and, and do it perfectly. And it, it, if I don't, then I, uh, I will convert to Judaism. You know, like there's no path there otherwise. But at the same time, don't easily dismiss this idea that there are disciplines that we can employ that can change who we are. So it's one of the shepherds of the church here, an opportunity I think this is a time for us a season maybe to stop to experience some self-imposed loss and to see what Jesus can say to us through that disciple of Jesus Peter wrote first Peter chapter 5 verse 6 that we should humble ourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift us up in due time so the takeaway from this is just basically is that are there things in your life Maybe there's a singular thing. Maybe there's something that you can just cease from doing, some self-imposed loss, to give that to God, to see if you find something more robust about him in the process. No legalism involved here, folks. Just something to chew on. And if so, in that journey, devote that time to focusing on our path to the resurrection, to the cross, and to his rising again. See what that does in your life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, these thousands of years of history. I love the book of Daniel. I just love the idea that you brought these people so far away to live in a pagan land and to try to figure out what it means to live for you. Father, that's what many of us have to do in our lives. We have to figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of a world that doesn't care. So, Father, help us to be like these young followers of you, To stand up, to be bold, to be fearless and courageous in the face of strife. Knowing, Father, that you have saved us. You have saved us. So we do these things. We surrender all in worship of you. And we give you praise
1: in the name of Jesus. Amen.